he was the second youngest in a large family. His father loved him. His family was dysfunctional. He saw his mom die at a young age. His half-siblings couldn't stand him because he spoke the truth. And they hatched a plan to, when he was away from home one time, to trick him into being sold into human trafficking. The traffickers funneled him into a foreign country. It must have been strange, but the Lord was with him. One of the leaders of that country purchased him and the young man grew in capacity to the position that the owner put him in over his resources. Soon he was given the sole responsibility of the master's estate where he flourished. And his flourishing caught the eye of the master's wife who tried to prey on him. Again, he did the right thing. And she lied about him and accused him of rape. Without a trial, he was thrown in prison in a foreign country. It must have been strange, but the Lord was with him. There he continued to do right and excelled even in prison. And while in prison, fellow in prison employees, the ruler of this foreign country, came to him for advice. He gave them wisdom that would result in one of them being freed. And they promised to repay him and work for his freedom for his wrongfully unjust prison term. More years passed in prison before one of them remembered and did anything about their promise. It must have been very strange that the Lord was with him. When the ruler of the land needed help in a perplexing question, they remembered this guy in prison who had given them wisdom and they retrieved him from prison and they were impressed with his wisdom and the king rewarded him with an elite position in this foreign government where he flourished and again rose to prominence. When a national crisis came, his planning saved the country from destruction and neighboring countries looked to him for help. People traveled into the country for resources and some of those people were the very stepbrothers who had sold him into human trafficking. They had no idea he was still alive. It must have been strange, but the Lord was with him. Again, he did the right thing and forgave them. And as he thought about his life and the strange trials he had experienced for decades of simply doing right, his assessment was this sentence. As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant or purposed it unto good to save many people. Through his relief efforts, by the unique position that God put him in, his family was reunited, they were rescued from starvation, and they became the patriarchs of Israel, through whom the Jewish Messiah will later be born and provide saving grace to the world. And as you look upon the life of Joseph, it must have been strange. But the Lord was with him in the fire. And this morning, I'd like to give you the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-19 through 19, called, Thriving in Babylon, Flames of Glory. Flames of Glory. Look in verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange... Concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. That word strange, we could place it and describe it in these words here. Uh, think it not offensive. 
Think it not as something to repel against. Think it not as something to recoil back from. Think it not as something to put you in a state of confusion. Put it, uh, think it not, not uh, something to, put you, to, to, to be described as something hideous. Think it not something to be flabbergasted by. Illogical. To describe it as something that makes no sense. Think it not strange. He's writing to people who, under the Emperor Nero, they will start here in the, in the years after this letter is written to see intense and increasing persecution. Some of, some of them literally in the, in the city of Rome would be uh, dipped in paraffin and be tied to stakes in the emperor's garden be used to light his garden. It's an awful thing. But Peter takes that picture of fire which he has already in chapter 1 used to describe the trials of our life. That though they are burning and they are heated and they are painful, God is using to purify and cleanse and make us more like His Son. I wonder, though you might not probably be facing the same particular intensities or the same particular issues or trials that Peter is writing to with these particular people, I can guarantee that all of us have experienced trials or are in a trial right now. And around the corner we'll come to experience another one. And Peter's writing to people who are facing persecution and pressures, I think by extension here, these truths are relevant for us in any particular trial. And so what I want you to understand here this morning is that whatever age you're at this morning, whatever circumstances you're experiencing, Peter is calling us to have the same mentality, to arm yourselves, as he said in the beginning of chapter 4, Uh, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same thinking, the same mind, that He should no longer live the rest of His time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Here is what it would mean for a man like Joseph, a woman who was coming from uh, Cappadocia, a young child who may have been facing things through their parents, a businessman who might have seen relationships crumble because of his stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to understand and enable us to walk through the fire and to see God's glory be revealed. The first thing I think we can see here from 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 is that we need to return to joy, return of joy. If you look at these verses, verse 11, 12 through, through 14, you're going to see a mind shift here. You're going to see a way of thinking of the natural man, the man without Christ, the man without the Spirit, now able to see life and his sufferings and his trials from a different perspective. This is something that is unique to Christians. Because we have been brought near to Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And God has a purpose now to conform us to the image of His Son. 
And so anything that happens, therefore, is better than I deserve because I deserve the eternal flames. Anything that happens to me is better than I deserve. But not only that, God will use it, produce in me the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, the very glory of Jesus Christ that one day will be full and completed when I ascend into the next life. And so Peter says this, Don't think it's strange concerning this fiery trial, which is the trial, is some strange thing happened to you. A foreign thing happened to you. In other words, it should arrive as no surprise. But, so here's the put on part. But, rejoice. How do you rejoice? Your mind needs to be renewed in these truths. The truths are this. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, you are engaged in the fellowship and the sharing of Christ's sufferings. So this is bigger than me. The trial I'm going through, this is bigger than me. This is sharing in Christ's sufferings. This is Colossians chapter 1 says, filling up the afflictions of Christ, that when His glory shall be revealed, when He returns, and when you are in His presence for eternity, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Notice he says ye, which is the plural of you. He's not just speaking to individuals. He's not just speaking to you as a person. He's talking about all of us as believers. You all, you all may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy or blessed are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Now why would we think, first of all, that a trial that would happen to us would be strange? Why would that seem foreign to us? Well, Maybe it's like Joseph, where you were doing the thing that was right, and it seems like you're getting punished for it. You've been a good Christian. You may assume that because of that, things should go very smoothly and good in your life. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God never says that to us. It never promises us that. It may happen. Very often it may not. Things are not guaranteed to be good for us on a certain level in this life. You see, that's the way the natural man thinks, right? But the realm of the Spirit here is a different perspective. And Peter's showing these verses, there's two ways to live. There's ways to live. I live in such a way that I demand God treats me this particular way or allows a good uh, a life that I define as good to happen or we surrender ourselves to the Lord and He defines what is ultimately good for us and when we come to the end of our lives we agree with Him and realize that what He said was true and it was good. What Peter wants us to understand here is that glory that to be revealed reminds us that we're on His side. We're on His side. He and we reign and win with Him in the end. It's a story that uh, on, a, on a warm October afternoon in 1982, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin, which hosts the, um, uh, the, the, the Badgers of the University of Wisconsin football team, was packed. There were 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters watching their football team take on the Michigan State Spartans. And it soon became obvious during that game that MSU, Michigan State Spartans, had the better team, the superior team. What seemed odd, though, is if you were a, 
a, a bystander, you may have noticed as the score became more lopsided and Michigan State continued to increase and win, there were bursts of applause and shouts of joy from the Wisconsin fans. Which may have prompted a question in their minds, how can you cheer when your team is getting absolutely slammed? And it turns out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. And many of the fans in the, in the stadium uh, were listening to the portable radios and they were responding to something that was different than their immediate circumstances. It's a humorous illustration here, but it illustrates this truth that Paul and and the Word of God and, and Peter here in this passage encourage us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but a greater reality, what is unseen. And when we do, we can rejoice even in hardships because we see Christ's larger victory. And so Peter tells them to first of all return to joy. Return of joy. Why could they return of joy? Because the proof there is in the fact that they're being persecuted for Christ. If, if you're being persecuted for Christ, Peter says that's a good identity here because it shows that you're on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says one of the signs is you're blessed with um, uh, the, 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 the glory of the Spirit of Christ resting upon you. Because who could respond in the appropriate way without the Spirit of Christ in you when things aren't fair? Your security is in Christ. You are in the safest place in the fortress of Christ. And this is proof here, the persecution that comes to you from unbelievers and the difficulties of life proves actually that God is not against you, but He is for you. This isn't just... Some positive thinking here. This does not just happen by um, some some positive thoughts and 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 just having good vibes. Jim Collins, who wrote the classic book From Good to Great, interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton, a POW during the height of the Vietnam War. And he asked him as he spent time there in the POW camp there among the Viet Cong as a prisoner, Collins asked Stockdale, who didn't make it out? Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. He said, the optimists. And Collins says, the optimists. What do you mean by that? I don't understand. So the optimists, they're the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas will come and Christmas will go. Then they say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. And Stockdale said, that's a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. See, they were living for an uncertainty, right? They had based... Their hope on an uncertainty. And Peter is telling believers that we can base and we can face the current circumstances with a certain reality that the glory of Christ will be revealed in us. And we can return to joy in that. 
Missionary to Iraq, uh, Karen Watson, wrote a letter prior to her leaving for the Middle East in March 7, 2003. About a year later, March 15, 2004, Karen was killed along with four other missionaries in Iraq. And she wrote this letter. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I am still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply, just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. And then she described the missionary heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you too and my church family. In His care, Shalom, Karen. What a waste, right? One year. Her life gone and three other missionaries. Well, that's not how God sees it, is it? She had a perspective that when the suffering would come, which would ultimately include the giving of her life, that she did not think it strange. Which leads us to the next point. Embrace the honor. Embrace the honor. Look what else Peter writes to them. Verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, the persecutors, he is evil spoken of. They're trying to stuff him out. But on your part, he is glorified. And the argument is this, that First Peter here is telling us here in verses 12-19, through what the opponent does actually serves to advance the cause. What he is doing in an offensive against Jesus Christ actually serves to advance the cause. Tertullian said this in the early years of the church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That when persecution increased and believers were being slaughtered, the church multiplied in greater and greater ways because there is a recognition here that when you're abused for the name of Messiah, you're blessed by God the Spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. The very naming of Jesus here, the, 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 the recognize, recognizing that He is Messiah, His royal title, the Anointed One, it, it calls up Jesus and all His majesty and all His glory and any curses that are that are called down on you by the persecutor turns into blessings instead is what Peter is saying here in these verses. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. He's glorified. And Peter will say, okay, if you're suffering going through trials by others, others are treating you poorly, make sure you're suffering for the right things. 
And so he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Suffer the right things, an innocence like Christ. Because what are you going to want to do when people harm you, when people uh, 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 hurt you? You're going to want to kill them. They take your things, you're going to want to take theirs. They spread things about you and slander you. You're going to want to do the same. Well, guess what? There's no reward for that. Suffer for the right things. Embrace the honor and innocence like the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of chapter 2. Peter says in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation, your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And he talks about life and ethics, what it looks like here. And then in verse 19, he says, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully... But he says, what glory, what honor is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. But if when you do good, you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. And he gives the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and His suffering. Suffer for the right things. Peter says in verse 16, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. You think the person who was writing this letter knew what it meant? Knew what it looked like to be ashamed of Jesus? His name was Peter. Denied the Lord three times. Christ forgave and restored him. He could identify with denial of Christ's denial, but he says, stand with Christ. And you may not have noticed something in this passage that's actually really unique here. He says in verse 16, Yet if any man suffer as a... Christian. You know, the word Christian was a title that developed. It was never a title that God called His people. It was a title the unbelieving world used in the term of derision. You're little Christs. Just like that peasant rabbi in Israel, that's what you are. The one who was crucified, extinguished. And in Acts, the church at Antioch was first called Little Christ, Little Christians. And here it's developed in such a way that now Peter is using it here. And this is the only other time besides Acts where it's used. He's saying, if you suffer as a little Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God on this behalf for this purpose here. To be called a Christian here was something, a term of derision, kind of like what the British did, the Redcoats did uh, to, the, to the Yankees here in the colonial days. They, call, they, they, they sang the song Yankee Doodle as a, as a song of mocking the, the colonists and the patriots here, derogatory term. And the colonists took that and took pride in it here. And Peter is taking this term of derision, little Christ saying, yes, exactly, we are. And notice what he says after verse 16. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? What he's saying is this. When you are walking in Christ and you are being mistreated, You're experiencing suffering. 
However, let's understand what the suffering is. Number one, it is a temporary suffering. The ultimate suffering is eternal suffering. God has taken you through the blood of Jesus Christ and He has spared you from eternal suffering. You will never face that. This is hard for you. It's hard for you now. But friends, think about how hard it will be to not know Christ and face eternal suffering. Think of how it will be for the persecutors if they do not turn to Christ. What you are facing is the worst you will face on this earth. What they are experiencing without Christ in eternity will be the best they will experience. And so what he's saying here is not use that against them, but use that to help frame and understand your suffering. And as the Lord Jesus did as he was on the cross, use in Stephen as he was being stoned to death, use that to embrace a compassion for those who are mistreating you. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they will do what what they are doing. There's a country in Asia that's predominantly Hindu. And over the past few decades, um, Christianity has grown and increased, especially among the poor and the tribal villages. And to not bait and switch people into saying that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have a wonderful, easy life. When they share the gospel, to make sure people understand up front what they will face if they turn from Hinduism to the gospel, they've asked these questions. If you follow Christ and you make this public, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job, your income? Are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you and forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? Why do they say those things? Is that what saves us? No. But so that they understand right up front the cost of following Jesus. These are sobering reminders for all Christians from every continent of what it may cost us to follow Jesus. To help us identify here with our brothers and sisters and remember those from all over the world as they are following Christ. And Peter here, as he lists the, uh, the things that the believers are going through here and uh, helping them under, understand and see there that uh, they have, this is the worst they will experience and the eternal suffering of the persecutors is, 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 is going to be what, what they will uh, experience if they don't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to you know, sorrow and compassion for their persecutors and help them understand that Jesus offers not only them but their persecutors terms of peace. And friends, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ here and have a living relationship with Him through the cross and resurrection of God's Son, Christ, and friends, your only future is in eternity without Him of eternal suffering. The Bible calls this hell, a place of torment. But Jesus has extended His terms of peace. Jesus has given you peace through the blood of the cross. 
through the exercise of your faith and what Jesus has accomplished for you, that nothing you could contribute to that, but all of Jesus, He offers terms of peace and a relationship of eternity with Him. And He calls you and commands you to turn to Him. And He promises rest for your soul. August 9th, 1995, and now in 2020, um, is that 25 years later? No, yeah, 25 years later. The 70, this, this, this year will be the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki, Japan in World War II with the atom bomb. What some of us might not know is that Nagasaki, there was a, um, a, a, a large Christian community there. Many of these people worshipped underground and had endured martyrdom for three centuries. They were only allowed to live their faith in public at the turn of the 1900s. And then when the bomb dropped in 60 seconds, they were wiped out too. But the survivor's response wasn't anger. Takashi Nagai, who lost his wife in the blast and who himself would later die from the effects of the radiation in 1995, said that the 8,000 Christians who died instantly in the blast were also included in that blast. And Nagai said this, Let us give thanks that through this sacrifice, peace was given to the world and freedom of religion to Japan. In other words, what are you saying here is he didn't see himself as exempt. He didn't see the other believers that worship with him as exempt here, living in a messed up world, scarred. But he saw that opportunity as an opportunity to bring glory to Christ. And you know what happened after World War II is missionaries flooded into Japan, and Japan was open to the gospel in a way that they hadn't been for years. It's hardened since. Which tells us that this kind of thing can only happen when, thirdly, we trust our good, powerful, sovereign Creator. I'm not sure why this slide's not coming up, but I want you to draw your attention to verse 19. From all that Peter has said in chapter 4, building to a climax here in verses 12 through 18. Peter encapsulates the message with this. Wherefore, therefore, so then, so if, since, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit and trust the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. You read that, you might have understood it as this. Here, commit your souls to Him who does well, as unto a faithful Creator. And the Greek actually is saying this. Commit yourselves to your faithful Creator and continue to do good. Is that what you feel like doing when pressure is on? Pour out to others. He says, and he uses a banking term of commit and trust here. It's the idea of a deposit. Take your soul. Take it to the banker. Put it all in the bank. Deposit your soul to notice how he describes our God. 
faithful creator. He could have used different words to describe our God. Here's what he used in the context. Faithful creator. Trustworthy. A God who can be counted on. A God who is the creator. The one who made the universe. He takes those words because He wants us to understand that our God takes chaos. He takes horrible things and He makes beauty and order out of that. And He can even do this with a persecutor like Exhibit A in the Scriptures, Paul. A trophy of His grace. Make beautiful things out of it. And when we look at the trials and think of them as strange, and they are, they are stressful, they are painful situations, but they help us grow and give heap glory on the Christ. One pastor gives this illustration. Imagine that you were handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. And better yet, with that script, you were given an eraser. And five minutes to edit the script of their entire life. To edit out whatever you want. And as you're reading that script, you find they're going to have a learning disability in grade school. Reading that's going to come easily for some kids is going to be very difficult for her. In high school, they're going to make a great circle of friends and one of their friends is going to die young of cancer. After high school... She's going to be able to get into her preferred college. But while she's there, she's going to lose a leg in a car accident. After that, she's going to go through a very difficult depression. A few years later, she's going to have a great job. And then she's going to lose that job very soon after because the economy is going to downturn. She's going to get married. But her spouse is going to cheat on her and she's going to go through the grief of separation. And you have that script of your child's life. And you have five minutes with this eraser to edit it. What would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that's going to cause them pain? And if you could erase every failure, every disappointment, every period of suffering, would that really be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the person who God intended them to grow into. And on the basis of this word of God, is it not true that we actually need setbacks, we need pressures, we need crisis, and even trauma? Though none of us would wish for it. We need them to reach what God intended us to be. We could have testimonies all over this room here of how things that you would have never chosen for your life, God has used to make you into His image in a greater way. You can even imagine. And you're not there yet. But you can say during those hardships, you saw accelerated growth in leaning on Christ. God is not at work producing the circumstances that I want. God is at work even in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants, someone has said. Joni Erickson Tata, who um, was paralyzed as a teenager by diving into a, a shallow pool um, here and spent her life here, and she's in her 70s now as a paraplegic, gone through cancer, etc. here. She, 
shares how we tend to worry that the cares and the troubles and afflictions of life will wear us down, dull our joy, dilute our hope, rob us of joy. And she says, she writes this, in fact, it very well many times is the opposite. It isn't the hurts, blows, and bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More likely it's careless ease, empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and many times too much prosperity that put layers of dirty films over our souls. And she's used the illustration of the Notre Dame Cathedral. This is before it burned here. But she talks about how she had the chance to visit the Notre Dame Cathedral when she was in Paris. And it was a thousand years ago. Huge. And it was black. She said she'd never seen such a dirty cathedral. Hundreds of years of soot and dust and smoke there in the city of Paris. Covered in layers of grime. It was hard to see even the beautiful carvings there of the exterior. And then they spent a year-long renovation of it. Of that old cathedral. Restoration. They put scaffolding up. And they sandblasted the entire exterior of it. And then she saw a photograph of it when it was finished and she couldn't even recognize it. She was stunned, she said. It was beautiful and so different. The stones were glowing bright and golden. You could see details on the carvings that hadn't been visible in decades. It was a a different cathedral. And we wonder what a little bit of sandblasting can accomplish, right? She said, that's how I see what God has done in me. This process that changed that cathedral in Paris. She says, I can't help but consider the way God used suffering to sandblast you and me. There is nothing like real hardships to strip off the veneer in which you and I so carefully cloak ourselves. Heartache and physical pain reach below the superficial surface places of our lives, stripping away years of accumulated indifference and neglect when pain and problems press up against the Holy God, suffering helps strip away years of dirt. Affliction has a way of jackhammering our character, shaking us up, losing our grip on everything we've held tightly. But the beauty of being stripped down to the basics, sandblasted until we can reach a place where we feel empty and helpless, is where God fills us up with Himself. When pride and pettiness have been removed, God can fill us with Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as you're held to the flame, and what Peter says, many different types of trials in chapter 1. And you're in the furnace, the crucible. Understand what God is trying to do with it. And return to joy. Because God is using this to heap upon you and to display you for Himself as a trophy of His grace. Just as that we drove to church this morning and the, the, the ice on the trees and the sun was just glittering. I mean, you couldn't hardly look at it. It was, it was stunning here. And He's going to hold us up in the, in the, in the presence of His Son uh, and, it, and display us as pure and pristine. I don't feel that way right now. But that's what He's doing in us. And so return to the joy of that. The disciples, when they were persecuted in Acts chapter 4, rejoiced that they were counted worthy. Embraced the honor. 
and trust our good and powerful and sovereign Creator. Would you look at verse 10 and 11 with me of chapter 5 and read them together? And this is Peter's summary statement of the letter. What he desires God to do with those who are living in Babylon to thrive. He says this in chapter 5 verse 10. Read it with me. But the God of all grace who had called us into His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Nick will lead us in near to the cross.